All right, and welcome to our very first, uh, we're calling this the Department of English here at Montana State Bobcast. We thought that would be kind of neat, didn't we? We sure did. Uh, my name is Will Fassbender. Allison Weinhoff Olson. And we are just excited to kick things off and start this podcast. We thought it would be a neat way to connect with students, uh, both those who are here. Perhaps those who've graduated would care to just sort of keep in touch with us and, and hear some things. And so we'll talk about things like education. We'll talk about the other professors and not just talk about them, but actually talk with them to learn more about sort of their interests. What other uh, purposes did we have for this podcast? We also want to connect with our students who are not with us on campus, but who are full-time grad students of ours, part-time grad students of ours who are teaching right now as we have this conversation and they are spread across the state and we just want to also share our voices and not just send emails to busy teachers. Yeah, and we, we're, we're going to try to not make these super long too, uh, sort of a quick shot and, and give some updates every so often. And it's something that you can have on your phone just as a, as a way of checking in and a way for us to check in with all of you. So we're excited to do this first podcast and we thought it would be neat to just talk a little bit about theory. Um, because a lot of our graduate students, uh, theory is something that we've talked about uh, sometimes in undergraduate courses for those who've, who've had uh, us or you in particular. We've talked about theory in the past, but sometimes it's hard for teachers to understand why theory matters. It, was that sort of the case for you, Allison, when you were like learning about theory, either in undergraduate or, or graduate work? What was what sort of your history with, with theory and learning about theory? So my history, I think, is my visceral memory that I was frustrated by it. I was, specifically, I was a doc student at Ohio State, and I had been teaching for nine years in the classroom, high school, middle school classrooms, and I just didn't know what to do with it. I wanted to think more about how to reshape classroom spaces, how to think about my pedagogies, and I didn't know how to make theory a part of that. Also because I found the reading so different and it was so dense. And while I could understand the words, I wasn't sure, I think, what to do with those words in relation to teaching specifically. And because of that, it was irritating to me. And it was not something that I would say, this is my strength. I would say that practice, if we think about the theory practice divide, practice was my strength. And I... You know, theory wasn't my pal. Right. And I think there is something to that theory practice divide, right? Like we we very clearly bifurcate this idea between theory and practice. And the notion, of course, is that theory is supposed to inform practice. But I think that there's also this tension because we often want our undergraduates in particular, so our pre-service teachers, to have a few things under their belt that they can enter the classroom with. And so sometimes we don't do a good job, I feel like, in undergraduate work being good stewards to theory because we're like, let me just give you the thing, right? Like we do focus so much on practice that sometimes we don't talk about the ways in which theory is underpinning the practice that we're giving to undergraduates. And I can remember for me personally, like it was, you you learn the, the, the handful of important theorists, right? You get Piaget in undergrad, right? And usually that comes through some sort of ed psych thing, yep. maybe. You get Vygotsky 
Definitely. Right. Um, zone and, of proximal development. And and you don't get all of Vygotsky, right? You Correct. get you get zone of proximal development and scaffolding, and that's what you know about Vygotsky. You get like a the the one the one line about Vygotsky right. that will help you as you plan. And then if you're lucky, you get maybe some Ericsson or you get some Bandura or some some somebody else. But but usually those are the the handful of people that you get. And we assume as educators going into the classroom that there aren't a whole lot of theorists that inform the work that we do. And that's not true. It's just that we're not as explicit about it when you are a pre-service teacher because we're rushing to give you all the methods that we can in such a short amount of time um, that I think the nice thing about graduate work is that we have the ability to sort of slow down and give you what we think are some of those more challenging texts. And perhaps it's an opportunity also to read a little bit deeper with Vygotsky, with Piaget, if that's something that you feel called uh, to, to study. And so I think that's one of the nice things about graduate work is that we expect you to almost reverse engineer the things that you've been doing. So you've right. been practicing, and now I, we want you to go back to theory to sort of figure out what are the things that have been informing your teaching practice. Uh, and I know that feels backwards a little bit, but it is one of those things that I think um, supercharges teaching when you have some more theory behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what I think is interesting about it as well is when I think about considering my own ethos in the classroom and maybe some of my typical moves teaching moves in the classroom and and just kind of human moves, right? I think slowing down and trying to articulate what those are and then trying to theorize a theory, right? And by that I mean who who care who else cares about this, right? Who has written about this? What is this thing that I either was trained to do and now have enacted and I've I, I believe in it, I'm immersed in it or something that I've developed and I just never had opportunity to think about what is the theory behind it or what are the theories that are coming together to help me do this work with students. Now, whether it's with undergrad students, grad students, working with youth, if I'm back working with teachers and kids in classrooms or community. And so I think having the opportunity to do that is valuable and what I'm always trying to navigate on the professor end of it is how much of that, right? How much do we offer, especially to our grad students? Um, because I, I will say, you know, listening to your your ideas about what we do for and, and with undergraduates, I have found that I think in a way I may theorize a little more than desired by my students because I know I can't give them specific methods and a toolbox so they are quote unquote ready to hit the classroom. And the reason is because I don't know where they're going and I don't know who their students are. I don't know what time, what moment in this world are they going to be there. And and perhaps that is now my different brain than when I started teaching or back when I first started at Ohio State recognizing the interconnections of theory and practice. And and sometimes I still think I, I don't quite know what maybe maybe what I call theory or what I call practice is actually an intersection or a nexus of. Uh, and sometimes it gets a little fuzzy. So I, th- I think it's interesting. But I, I do think this question, how much is the right amount for our grad students? How can we help support our grad students in the reading of theory? What 
what are the right pieces to give them or, you know, who are the right theorists and, and right, all of this is in air quotes, but we have decisions to make. Um, they need to see syllabi, they need to see plans. And so we can't just move along as we're cruising through the semester with everything. But that that's just always a question I wrestle with. And I'm curious, and I'm guessing probably some of our grad students are wrestling with that as they look at what we offer thinking, you want me to read what, right? What, what am I supposed to do with this? Or haven't we read enough? I'd like to move on. I think I'm just curious about that. Yeah, and I think that's one of the struggles that um, perhaps I've seen just across the board, you know, not even just necessarily this year, is that, again, people sort of find their their theory and they dig their heels in. And one of the things I think we're trying to do, in particular this year, whether it's undergrad or graduates, is provide enough variance and enough of sort of like a smorgasbord, right? Like give them, you want to read um, shallowly at first, until you find something that really resonates with you. And with graduate students too, in particular our practicing teachers, they've probably arrived at something that they know works for them, whether it's the practice and then they just need the theory to match onto it, or uh, maybe there is already a theory. And the, the thing that I think we're always trying to do is keep that fresh and new to say, maybe this is where you've started and this is where you continue to be. Is there something that uh, I, I think it's important, like what you talked about, the nexus of a bunch of theories. Maybe there's a little add-on to that theoretical approach that you have that makes this really valuable. And I think there's other pieces that make this really tricky, which is um, theories, in my mind, at least, are supposed to be sort of, we, we toss out that term lens, right? That lens piece is really quite important and it's because it helps you not only see your classroom in a particular way, but ideally it helps you sort of experience the world differently. Like a good theory does that, right? Like you can't not experience the world and see power whenever you've started reading Foucault. Or you can't talk to somebody and not think about like these discursive practices after you've read Bakhtin. Or you can't not see culture after reading Lads and Billings and understand how culture and making things relevant is valuable in a classroom, but also outside of classroom spaces and less formal educational spaces. And so the trick is always finding the right theories, right, and the right theorists, and also the the writings that are going to be the good stewards for that theory, because theory is difficult. And sometimes difficult by design, like people write theories purposefully difficult, you know, in a, in a difficult manner because it's hard to explain or, you know, in post-structuralism, they're always trying to deconstruct language. And so it's hard to deconstruct a language when using those same tools of language. Uh, and so theory is always going to be a little bit on the trickier side of practice. Practice is like the boots on the ground stuff, right? It's what do you do? The theory is like, how do I think about things in different situations and how do I carry theory with me mm -hmm. sort of throughout my life as a teacher, as a person, as a um, as a someone who votes, you know, in, in civic literacies, we think about these things a lot too. I mean, just as anybody who navigates this world, we think about how are the theories going to inform the things that we do. We just don't often think about those because they fall to the background, right? They They sort of they don't become the conscious thing that we think about all the time. 
they're the things that are informing our actions, but we don't necessarily recognize them when we have these theories or philosophies of of existing. Would you tend to agree with that? I agree. And I, I think what I'd love for us to chatter about here is I like how you mentioned we need to read shallowly at first. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I, I want to resonate on that just for a second and then ask a question is I'm inviting all of our students, anyone listening do read shallowly, even when it is a class assignment and we're saying read this text or these four, take a shallow read across so you understand what is there and know that if we're giving you a, a set of theories, we are expecting you to read across them and know shallowly what is there. And then very likely, depending on what we've asked you to do with those texts, we're going to ask you then to do another reading of it to get a little deeper. Maybe there is a question or a way of thinking that we'd like you to apply to the whole set that we offered in that week or those two weeks. Maybe there is an activity or an application piece that we're asking you to do. Maybe we're asking you simply to do a rereading of of one or several or all because we want to see what you as a good reader are doing when you've taken multiple reads to it and you've read it differently. Um, So at first, I just want to have that invitation to say maybe what is counterintuitive coming from some English ed profs, please read shallowly sometimes when we give you theory because we are trying to throw several theorists and theories out so our students can find their theories and help articulate and also know when they need to pull theories together or simply articulate what their theories are and try to name it. And together as a community, we can help each other to say, I actually think so-and-so and and -and so-and-so are writing about your theory. This might sound like Dewey and Django Paris. I mean, wouldn't that be an interesting combination? What would it look like to bring Dewey and Paris together what might we get? What do we have? What are other people saying? What are you saying, person who's writing it, wonderful student? And and I also I think to have a little bit of ability to, to hover and pause the desire to go to that application, part of what we care about in our grad program and our undergrad program is to think across our identities as student, teacher, and researcher. And sometimes, as I mentioned earlier, my teacher self will front and I will get in the way of my my reader of theory self or perhaps my researcher self because I want to think about the application. And I know that when we need to show up in the next 10 minutes or the next day to our classrooms, we always have to be thinking of our teacher selves. And yet there is a beauty in taking the student moment to let that be at our workplace and to have some of these conversations and read differently, read the theorists. So I I think what the question I'd like to lob back to you, Will, is how can I read shallowly? Are there any trip trips, tips or tricks that you use or that you've offered students that allow you to to go do that shallow examination before you might dive in? So one of the the best pieces of advice I ever got was in grad school from a former Buckeye, Dr. Uh, uh, Betty St. Pierre. She used to tell us, because she taught us this a um, post-structural course, and she said, you're not going to understand this. And you're not going to understand it the first time. You may not understand it the second and third time. Whatever, and, and she said that right from the beginning. Not a specific text. It was just the field of post-structuralism was so tricky and so difficult that you may not understand it. 
but read it and just let the words wash over you. I mean, really just let the words wash over you and some things are going to stick, others are not. Uh, and you just sort of need to sort of let those things soak in a little bit at a time. And it's a funny thing that over time, you know, after actually a couple courses, not even by the end of that semester, but over a couple of courses and graduate programs, you find yourself miraculously beginning to understand really difficult things. And it doesn't happen like this. It happens a little bit over time, and it does happen with a shallow reading, right? But then there were things that I really badly wanted to understand. And um, you have to go back to those types. Of, you, you have to return to that text. If there's a thing that you're like, it feels like I should know this, and this feels like something that I care about, that's when you go for a careful, deep reading. Um, those are Judith Butler's words. Like she talks about a careful and deep reading because her writing is notoriously hard and very tricky to understand. And what she says to critics of her work is, well, maybe you're not reading deep enough. Uh, and so there are times, and if you don't want to understand Judith Butler or if you don't want to understand Django Paris or you realize Rosenblatt's not the person for you, you let those words wash over you, and maybe you don't return to that person if you feel like they're not resonating with you and the work that you want to do. But you allow yourself to just let those words wash over you, figure out what, what does make sense. Maybe you pick out a thing or two if there's a discussion that you need to engage in. Then you pick that thing out, right? You, you pick on the thing that really seems to make the most sense to you. And what you'll be amazed about, I think, is when we go into these professional spaces like NCTE, and you hear people talking about culturally sustaining pedagogy. And all of a sudden, like, you think, is that Django Paris? Like, you, all of a sudden, it occurs to you, like, I actually do know this stuff. Uh, and it, but it happens over time. And it's, uh, it's insidious in nature, right? Like, it just, it seems to happen very slowly. There's not, for me, it was not a moment. I don't, I can't pinpoint a moment when, when really difficult theory became easy for me. Uh, and it's still not easy for me, but it is one of those things where it just sort of happens the more you do it. And I understand the frustration, right? We're so used to being, as English teachers, experts at reading, the smartest reader in the room, right? Like we have to be at least better readers than our students. And it's difficult when we're confronted after all these years with a text that um, feels difficult, feels hard to embrace, feels like nonsense. Um, that's not comfortable, but it's about living in that discomfort too and allowing yourself to not be an expert for the first time in probably a long time and not being a good reader, but just sort of powering through and allowing that shallow reading to slowly evolve into a deeper reading. I mean, that's sort of my experience. Would you would you tend to agree you've had like those moments, Allison? I, I love that actually. And as someone who loves language, I think this is the true English major in me. This having you tell me those words, I've just let the words wash over you. I mean, I'm just sitting back in this chair now thinking, yes, like that's what I want to do. I want to be able to have these opportunities to read, even when I don't appreciate the text someone has given me and I need to read it and I'm just going to sit with it. I'm just going to let those words wash over me and I'm going to lean into my frustration. I'm going to lean into my discomfort. Um, what Bob Fetcho, one of my favorite 
um, scholars, you know, using his term wobble, I am going to lean into that wobble and I am going to, I'm going to be, and I'm going to exit that chair and that text irritated, confused, thrilled that I got it done, many other emotions, I'm sure. And I, I remember doing that. I mean, even last month, I remember doing that in graduate school and the moment that I remember, Will, is not the moment where suddenly I thought, I've got it. I can read theory and do something with it. But it was the moment, I two moments actually, I remember entering graduate school uh, for my doctoral work and listening to peers who were four to six years ahead of me, actually even two to six years ahead of me. And I remember listening to them talk and I thought, I do not understand everything they just said. I am also in awe at what they just said. I don't quite know why, but they are clearly intelligent. I am watching them teach in this moment. I am watching them interact with their peers or with youth or with professors, depending on the situation. And this was like my first full year of graduate school. This kept happening. And and I thought, wow. And my, my friends and I would talk about how did they do this? We do not sound like this. We felt jerky in in terms of our our speech, like stilted and awkward and huh, like really questioning ourselves and stopping and and musing and worrying that we weren't get it right. And they sounded articulate and smart. And I cannot tell you when, but there was a moment where several of us looked at each other and we literally looked around and we thought, did you just hear that? How did we do that? How did I do that? You just did it. And we literally said things to ourselves, to each other, like, you did you 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 have to write that down? Did anybody record that? You need to hear it. That was beautiful. You're there. You're doing the thing that I think I don't even know for this Bobcast what I would even call it, but this actually would be a fun nerdy thing for me to try to write through. But it was that moment of realizing we can and are participating in these conversations. And I think for me now sitting where we are thinking about undergraduates, thinking about uh, graduate students at the master's level, and thinking about writing project teachers and students all together, I'm thinking about what are the ways that we can continue to offer these moments to bump into each other and have conversation. That's part of my impetus for this. Who can we invite? Who wants to come on and chatter with us? Anyone and anyone else from the English department? Maybe who do you want to just banter with and see what questions that you have on the fly or maybe prepared? What are the youth in our classrooms saying and wondering about? And just listening to how we talk about it and letting those words wash over us and, and then have some cool meta moments or writing time or just personal reflection to consider what just happened and what that means for us. Because I think that is also what moves our teaching and that's what moves our learning and our students' learning. And I do think there's theory wrapped up in all of that. And I, I tend to agree. I think that's really important is that sort of as we, and we just um, talked about sort of the Donald Murray process, not product, sort of uh, writing that happens and I think that this is like the long game, right? This is, it doesn't happen in a moment, like you said, but there are moments when you catch yourself being theoretical and being academic. 
And I think that's one of the things that's sort of magical about this process of this slow reading, perhaps you could call it that, or this shallow reading or letting the words wash over you is that we are we are trying to help, I think, our teachers become teacher researchers, right? Like taking up that identity. And so much of that is really based on theory, right? Like it's it's about getting a grasp and entering into this field and having these conversations because we do, as people who are teacher researchers, have a like a shared language. And I know that's been one of the complaints that actually comes out of the our, our reading of theory in our courses is that people, I think, uh, our teacher researchers and uh, our graduate programs don't like that. I've read terms like ableist um, or foreclosing, and it doesn't allow for... Um, because of the difficulty of some of these texts, it doesn't allow teachers who aren't as well-versed in this type of writing to engage in research. And I know that we are trying to do our best in order to bring more teachers into the fold through our graduate program and have them um, read more theory, read more difficult research, because we believe it's powerful in informing their teaching when they are within this system, right? Once they, once they're well-trained and able and disciplined, I know is another word that we often use in graduate school. Would you tend to agree though, that um, this type of work, doing theoretical work in particular and thinking with theory, is it foreclosing, do you think for teachers? Uh, I mean, that's something that I've struggled with. And is there something that our graduate students can be doing with professional papers or thesis when they're writing it to move out of that system or are they kind of, uh, do we expect them to work within that theoretical sort of high theory realm in order to be able to speak sort of the language, the academic language that we've become so deeply accustomed to? I probably won't fully answer this question uh, to everyone's delight, but I think my gut reaction here and, and one fairly that has had some thought because, you know, thinking about courses that I've taught at the grad level and, and meeting with and talking with a lot of grad students lately about professional papers and programs of study, et cetera. I think we need what opportunities we can offer for our students, our grad students, to read theory and read it shallowly and let the words wash over and get frustrated and push back and articulate their discomfort so we as a community can move across together to determine what can different endpoints look like. I understand the pushback. The words that you're using specifically are fascinating to me, uh, basically because I would not have offered those words and I love that some of our people did. I would love to drill into that more. Why is that? And and so as a graduate student, that's what I would ask people to do. Why is that the right trait or feature or modifier for your experiences here? What does that really mean? Unpack that. And I know several of them have, whether it's it's been together as they chatter or as they're thinking into professional papers, because I think what is significant is that we invite people to build toward a professional paper or thesis if someone chooses that option that truly allow them to be professional educational researchers and tied into that I believe the way I say it and mean it is fully as a teacher 
or someone who has learned more about education and is a member of the education world. And what does it mean for a teacher to write a professional paper that does X? What does it mean for another teacher in the same cohort to write a completely different professional paper that does X? I believe we need, it's a both and for me. I want our people reading theory. I want our people showing off their incredible pedagogical prowess. I want them writing for the sake of writing, not because you're a writing teacher, but because you are a writer. I want us playing with language because we are people of language, not just purveyors of awesome pedagogy using language. Um, We are wonderful readers. How can we come together and push? How do we ask those who are just theorists, those who are not setting foot into our teachers' classrooms, how might we ask them, perhaps literally, perhaps figuratively, how might you offer this information differently? Must you write it in this particular fashion? Because I want to tell you why I find it frustrating. I want to offer what might be a better approach for someone like me, and I would love to see what you could do with it. And maybe that person responds. They may be dead and gone and cannot respond, they may have no interest in responding, but our students are the nexus there. They get to produce and show us, here is actually what I think is more valuable and this is why. And here's why I love that. I think they're theorizing and creating and teaching all in that moment. And so it feels a little bit like a, see, you're doing it. I do not believe all of the models for what we need to write and do are out there. I believe we are creating them as we move through every day. And so I invite the the multiplicity of products because I really want us to lean into the process and lean into our community. And I tend to agree with that as well. I think it's really important that we uh, that we read theory first and foremost. I mean, particularly in a course on foundations, right? Like we we need to have like a shared language. There's a reason why we read these texts in particular, right? Like there's, um, it's giving you access to what the whatever the dominant and pervading thoughts that either are, um, uh, sort of the foundations of the course for better of a, for a better term. What were the foundations of English education, and then what are the more novel and different and perhaps weird ideas that are out there about what inform practice as well? Um, but I think what's important about what you said was that we're we're going to have you read shallowly, and eventually you're going to take up theories and read a little bit deeper, and we're going to expect you to think with theory, which I think is important. But when it comes to your own writing, what you do with theory, we're pretty open with, you know, we, but we expect there to be some sort of theoretical underpinning to your work that you do. And I think that's really valuable in, in, in particular, the, one of the, I think the analogies that works for me when I think about theory and the value and importance of theory is that we could give you a map, right? We could give you like, start here, point A. Uh, here's point B, point C, and then you're going to end here at point Z. Like we could all, we could be very prescriptive with this program. We could tell you exactly what to do, what to think, what theories to use, what methodologies to do with research. And we could be very prescriptive with that. But instead, and I think what theory does in general, whether it's uh, research, whether it's classroom practice, is that it gives you a compass instead, right? We could give you, and I think this is what theory does that's really specific and really special, is that it gives you your true north. 
because it tells you when we can't tell you every crazy thing that's going to happen in your classroom. And a lot of our practicing teachers have been through it all, right? They've seen it all. And one of the things that they probably don't realize is that theory is the thing that informs your knee-jerk reaction when things go crazy, right? Like there's some sort of theoretical underpinning. There's some sort of philosophy behind that that tells you, I don't know what I'm going to do when craziness happens, but when craziness happens, I have a compass. I have a theory that tells me how I'm going to react in a particular situation. So there's that very practical manner in the classroom. And then there's that research side that says, what are the theories that really inform and help me think about this research process as well? And those two things don't have to be divorced from one another. A really good teacher figures out what happens in classroom practice and then what are the things that really help me see what's happening in my classroom and what helps me see things when I'm doing observations of my students and I'm thinking more as a researcher. And so when we have these professional papers that students are producing, which we're so excited to read, the opportunity for them to be able to then create their own theories or, or like you said, sort of take two different theories, take a Dewey and a Django Paris and sort of pull them together to create this really unique hands-on experience that does culturally sustaining pedagogies in some sort of way. We're so open to that because we want you to begin developing your own theories too. But I think it does start, importantly, with the the broad reading, that the understanding of what the foundations of our field of English education is all about. Um, because I think once you have that under your belt, once you understand what's underpinning this whole educational practice and this whole knowledge production thing that we're engaging in as researchers and as te- teachers, I think you then have the authority. Like you, all of a sudden you feel empowered to say, I'm not a Rosenblatt person. I don't, I don't believe it, but this is how I'm responding to Rosenblatt. So even the people you disagree with, you have to have them under your belt to know what you're responding to. And I think that's one of the other important pieces that you have to be able to express in your own research and your professional papers as well. Absolutely. And I think, Will, that's why we ask our students in different moments in our coursework to foreground theory or background it, perhaps mute some of your pedagogical instincts here so you can listen and articulate uh, what you're doing, why you're doing it. And, and that creation is coming. And I am so grateful for continuous students who are offering their experiences with it because we know there are varied experiences with everything that we offer. It's not just theory. So hopefully we've given some interesting uh, perspective on theory and and what it does. I think the last piece that I want to offer is being a member of graduate committee for a while here in English, I have learned that our program was initially set up to have a specific theory course. And the reason that was done in English studies was because that was the place for theory to occur. And as English studies has evolved as a field across retcomp, literature, creative writing, education, etc., linguistics, we have recognized that theory is across. It is does no longer need to be, probably never should have been just sorted and foregrounded in one place, but rather people are taking up theory across courses. And so I think what's great is that our undergraduates and our graduates across the English department are receiving 
theory. Sometimes the professors articulate it. Sometimes they don't. Maybe we're backgrounding it deliberately. And I think maybe always ask those questions of your professors. Ask it of yourself when you are teaching. Um, why am I doing this? It's part of that rationale. It's part of that articulation. And we know as teachers that when we are teaching well, it's because not only do we understand the concept, but because we can articulate so much around it and behind it and even moving forward that we we know it inside out, right, is that little idiom. And theory is a part of that. And so while it remains maybe not my favorite aspect, certainly, because sometimes it can move away from the people, um, though it need not. I love the the humanity of the work, and I'm so grateful for the, the multitude of theories we have in our field across English studies and watching it hit the classroom and watching the classroom transform it and transform people is fantastic. So... Absolutely. And I think that's a wonderful place to end. Uh, I really do think that it's important for our students to understand that theory is all around. Uh, it may be more or less explicit, but uh, but certainly it is uh, embedded in everything we do. And I think it's also important to note just that um, if you don't see yourself reflected in the theories that you believe in our courses, that's a great opportunity to let us know, like, I'd like to learn more about this, or I do these things in my classroom. Is there a theory out there for me? And more than likely there is. And if not, we're going to charge you with creating that theory for us. So um, with that being said, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to our very first Department of English at Montana State Bobcast. It's been a pleasure joining you. And Allison, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you, Will. Appreciate it, everyone.